This episode is brought to you by the GSD Network. The GSD Network offers full-service podcast production, audiobook production, copywriting, email marketing, and much more. If it has anything to do with hitting a button that says publish, we probably do it. To check out what we have to offer, type in gsd.network. Welcome. Thanks, James. Great to be back uh, connected with you. All right. Rex is an international trumpet superstar. Those are my words, not his. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, actually currently in, is it Poland you're in or Norway? Norway. You're in Norway. We're recording this on the 1st of May, and uh, this is going live on the 24th of May. But, uh, man, what else can we say about Rex other than that, he just knows what he's doing on the trumpet. So, Rex, get us up to speed. What's going on in your world? Well, I'm here uh, this week at the Norwegian Academy of Music and uh, just finished four nights uh, playing a jazz club in Vienna called Jazzland. That was quite fun. Uh, it's um, a club with a deep history. It's uh, just celebra- celebrating its 45th year this past week and I was looking at the walls. Um, it's a kind of space you would never see in America. It's like in a, uh, 15th century catacomb, <laughs> you know, something that, uh, you know, very European, I suppose, in, in terms of the types of structures we might find there. But the whole, all the walls aligned with, uh, all these, uh, jazz artists who have performed there many mm. might. So it was, uh, quite intimidating, <laughs> To play there, but it ended up being quite a bit of fun, and it went well. So I'm, uh, I'm glad I did it, and I'm here in Oslo and back to the states on Thursday. Well, fortunately, it was just the pictures of those people, not the actual people listening to you play. Yes, although that, sometimes you feel like they're there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the spirit is there. Yes, exactly. Well, man, Rex, you've been all over the world. I mean, you're halfway uh, across the world from where you live in Virginia right now been all over and you you know performance very well but i want to start this interview off with a time when things perhaps didn't go as well as you thought just um not necessarily you just fell flat on your face and people are booing you or anything like that but a time when you expected to do really well like you expected a certain outcome and for whatever reason it just didn't work out. Can you think of a moment like that? Sure. Well, I've, um, I, I have, um, one example that's, uh, relatively recent and was only actually for a brief moment of the, uh, performance. Um, and in fact, at this point, it's actually something of a, a source of, a great humor between me and my wife, especially, um, where I pretty frequently done the, uh, the Hummel concerto 
in E flat as we do most of the time, but of course it's originally in E natural. And on occasion I do it in E natural on D trumpet. So sometimes um, as I switch back and forth in rehearsal especially, I'll have a little fingering moment uh, where I press down the wrong valve, uh, which would be correct perhaps in the other key on the other horn. But I had a, um, <laughs> you can, I can tell you can, you can tell where this is going. I had a, a, a quite bad moment on stage. I gosh, it must have been a year and a half ago. And an otherwise um, pretty good performance. And I, I almost never really feel like I, I play well. So the fact that I felt like for the most part, this is as well as I could play, except for this one horrible moment, uh, I think tells you something. Um, it was on the, you know, as you're looking at the part in the first page, we all know this. And as a trumpet player, James, I so I'm sure you know which moment I'm speaking of in the Hummel. And for some reason, it started with me throwing a turn in there that didn't belong, and we're doing it in E natural on my D trumpet. And I must have been jarred by my own error. And as I made the descent down the octave. Apparently, I pushed down the wrong valve and kept trying to find it <laughs> the entire measure. Uh, the effect is astoundingly comedic, I think. my At least it was to my my wife when uh, I realized, uh, you know, so I stood there. I'm trying to keep my composure, trying to be a professor, you know, and I, I'm sure my eyes widened, but I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> come on, Rex, keep it together. This is the mo- That's the most horrible thing you've probably played since you were 13. <laughs> On stage, but uh, you know we got to be a pro here. But um, they they posted the video on YouTube, and, <laughs> and, and um, I remember seeing this, and it, and it was such an anomaly. I I didn't even really feel terrible about it. I was like, God, this is this is hilarious. It's almost um, it's almost epic, and and how bad that moment was, you know. <laughs> so I I had to go to that moment in the video. My wife was in the other room. And she's like. What the hell was that? <laughs> well, well, that's that's me, and she just started laughing, and just just out of control. She's like, "Play it again, play it again." <laughs> and uh, in fact, she managed to record it on her phone, so uh, she wanted my room tone. I'm like, "Great, thanks, thanks for adding to the uh, humiliation there." You know, and um, <laughs> there was that moment, uh, which, in retrospect, um, more than anything, I th- I found funny. Um, and I, but I do have a, a little bit of a darker memory. Um, as I don't know if you've experienced this, sometimes when you have uh, a shorter time frame in which to play, um, everything you do seems to count a little bit more. And such is the case perhaps with the offstage solo that opens the Lieutenant KJ suite. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a difficult solo. It's, it's pretty straightforward, pretty lyrical. And for some reason, I remember when I was a sophomore at Northwestern playing a concert, um, I was playing the offstage solo. This would have been probably, geez, back in 1988 or something. And man, I just slaughtered it. I mean, I had no idea why. It just did not work. And this was, uh, this was something that was not technically challenging for me or for most you know, people who were sophomores in college at the time. So it was... Uh, it was a bit of a shock and uh, I had trouble coming to terms with why um, I'd played so badly. 
And then I had to go on stage after that, and I was very, <laughs> I was quite embarrassed that people would see the person who uh, seemed to miss more notes than they were actually written in the solo part. Um, it was like I was making up additional notes and playing them wrong. Uh, it, was, it was that bad, you know. So that's the one that really jumps out at me is a, a short performance as opposed to um, uh, a longer full solo performance, which is mostly what I do these days. I, I'm, I'm not sure other than that astonishing, humble concerto moment, I have any examples of um, solo performances or jazz performances where I felt like I completely fell on my face. But that one uh, of Lieutenant KJ, that solo man, that, that still uh, stands out in my mind. Kind of seared like a hot iron in your mind, that memory, oh, isn't it? I, I decided that night, I was so devastated, I decided to quit the trumpet. I just, uh, as it turns out, I just couldn't quit, but I really wanted to. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a contrast between uh, that time when you're a young man and you, like, you, f- you f- flub a, a solo, and it sounds to me like... It just it just didn't go well, and then you have this other moment, years and years later, and now we're laughing hysterically about it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just the difference between uh, that experience and the the time that passes. You just do you think that you just realized you know what the crowd is going to like it anyway? Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of it has to do with the way we view our current. Um, situation as a performer. Now, if I was prone to um, have horrible fingering mistakes on stage, or, or you know, just sort of generally forget what key I was playing in, um, I might have been more sort of uptight about this uh, this moment that occurred during that humble performance. But it was such an anomaly right. in an otherwise otherwise a, a performance that otherwise I was fairly happy with. That I, I mean, you know, what can you do? I mean, I. Um, I, I was just, in retrospect, I felt glad that I didn't completely fall to pieces after that <laughs> sort of shocking moment. But yeah, these, these things do happen. Yeah. Uh, and, um, the best thing we can do is, uh, just dust ourselves off and, and keep moving. You know? And it's a, it's another example of how experience enabled you to just shake it off. And you just, and like you said, um, it's hard for me to imagine you not playing well. But uh, you said that uh, by even by your standards, you played well the rest of it. And that's just a testament to experience of just um, shake it off, short memory, and let's let's make it happen for the rest of it. Well, I, I learned something um, back when I was uh, – I studied with Chris Gecker at the Aspen Music Festival in the, when I was uh, 18 and 19. And he told me a story that always really stuck with me. It was about Bud Herseth. One time when Chris heard Herseth play, now Herseth, of course, was famous for his consistency, you know, and the legend was that he he never missed a note. And, you know, um, I might have believed that when I was 18. I don't believe it now because I know Bud was not a robot. He was a human being. And I've heard every one of my favorite trumpet players uh, miss a note in a concert at this point in my career. So I know uh, I know <laughs> the truth about all that, you know. <laughs> but the story that Chris told was I, I don't remember what the piece was, but uh, Bud was playing and he chipped something. And Chris at the time, who was a young man when he heard it, was like, "Whoa, man, Herseth! You know, he chipped something. Whoa, the the master actually made a mistake." And he saw this little look cross Bud's face very briefly, 
But then he came back and the next phrase he played was like the most beautiful thing Chris had ever heard. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like Bud's response to making a, a mistake was to just to raise his game. Hmm. And I was like, wow, that's, that's heavy. You know, that's a certain, um, that takes a, a certain kind of, um, um, a different kind of nerve to, to deal with that. It's, it's, it's one thing to never make a mistake, which as we know is not really, um, that doesn't really happen to human beings (laughs) to get the entire, you know, um, you know, multiple performances without actually making a mistake, but to see someone who can, who can face a mistake and come out better, that was really inspiring. Wow, man. There's someone that I wish I could have on this podcast is Bud Herseth. Sadly, that's not possible, but, uh, you know, maybe we could get someone who knew Bud and, get some insights on him. Um, this next moment, this ne- next question is what I call the I've got this moment. And what I'm thinking of is a moment where you're sort of getting comfortable in your own skin. Maybe it's in a performance of some kind and you just things, something clicks and you think I've got this. I am totally in control. I'm completely comfortable. I don't feel nervous. I, I am totally at ease with myself playing. Can, can you think of a moment like that? I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but that's actually most of my performances. Mm. To be honest with you. Um, this is, um, I, and part of that is not, um, not from feeling that I play perfectly, um, which I virtually never do, at least as far as I'm concerned. I'm hoping that I have some performances that other people don't hear blemishes. <laughs> But uh, if they were sitting on my side of the bell, they probably would, you know. <clears throat> but I'm most of the time when I'm on stage now, I feel pretty happy to be there. I feel like it's under control, and I feel like um, uh, I'm in the pocket with things. And part of that has been an evolution of my attitude. I think uh, when I was younger, if uh, things weren't exactly as I hoped, it was maybe the uh, quality of the ensemble I was playing with or the approach of the conductor or maybe the piano player if it was a recital, um, I would be much more likely to um, maybe feel uncomfortable and and respond uh, in kind musically. Um, I'm much more kind of accepting of what happens on stage now. And this actually brings me back back to another lesson from Chris Gecker. He pointed out to me, he's like, man, you got to be much more demanding on yourself in terms of what you're doing in the practice room and in rehearsals and much more forgiving of yourself in terms of what happens on stage. Cause he saw a bit of the opposite trend in me. I was a little bit loose. Not that I wasn't practicing hard, but I wasn't really organized and disciplined in my practice. And then I'd get really angry at myself about what happened on stage. Yeah. And um, he pointed out that I had to kind of reverse those, uh, those mindsets and it took me a long time to learn to apply that. But uh, I feel like I do that now. Most of the time, I'm really happy to be on stage. And I, you know, I, I don't really find myself in a position that I'm on stage with music that I'm not prepared to play. Um, and that's experience, too. That, that used to happen to me when I was younger um, on occasion. Now, you know, I plan better and I can kind of look uh, ahead at what's coming up and make sure I've got time to get it together. And... Um, Obviously, I work very hard in the practice room, and these days now, um, most of what happens on stage, man, I just I just kind of roll with it and say, well, 
today this is how uh, this is how this piece goes, man. I mean, <laughs> and uh, that's my way of kind of trying to stay happy and forgiving on stage and uh, trying to stay in that, uh, as you put it, this uh, that sort of a I got this yeah. uh, mentality. Yeah. So you play jazz, you play classical. Do you ever um, find jazz sort of bleeding into your classical playing and vice versa? Like, do, do, you, do you find the jazz influencing your classical classical playing? Um, in some ways, I I try not to have too much of, a, of an overt influence either way. Uh, but that depends because I, I tend to think of uh, the way I play the horn in in both broad genres as uh, maybe a different accent, you know. And if we think of one as as English uh, American English speakers, when we hear an accent, we can hear say a European accent, and if it's very heavy and it's hard to understand the person, it can be maybe not the plus, the most pleasant thing to listen to. Um, on the other hand, if it's a very light accent and the person is actually quite fluent in English, but they have this little touch of, say, an Italian or French accent, or that can actually be quite pleasant. And it can be sort of a little bit of a different angle on the sound of the language. And I've come to think of my goals as a jazz or classical player to line up with that sort of aesthetic, as in if I sound like I've got a touch of a jazz approach when I play classical that's okay. And likewise, if I sound like I, I play the trumpet from a classical point of view to a bit of a degree on the jazz side, I'm okay with that. Um, more broadly speaking, there's a, a bit of a philosophical angle on it, I suppose. I mean, obviously the root of jazz practice is to a large degree is improvisation. And while I don't always get to improvise in classical settings, and I, I do actually quite a bit, um, but that's not always part of the format. I, I always want to make the music sound like it's improvisatory. I, I came to realize at a certain point that the classical performances that I was really enjoying had that quality to them. And I realized, well, you're, you know, you're a jazz player. See if you can get that same vibe when you play classical music in terms of conviction and, and just sort of committing to the phrasing in the same kind of way that you would if you were actually improvising the music. And so that's that's where I think jazz can have a positive influence on my classical playing. And on the reverse, it's more a matter of uh, more than anything, it's about how I play the instrument. All the fundamentals of my technique come from my classical training, and I try to hang on to those fundamentals when I'm playing jazz. I want to make some slight differences of the sound, uh, but essentially play the horn the same way and rely rely on that classical training. And uh, in that sense, I'm applying my classical approach to playing the instrument um, to the discipline of improvisation, which is uh, something altogether separate from from actually playing the instrument. All right. Well, we are about to step into the hot seat segment right after we take a moment to thank our sponsor. Rex, you are now on the hot seat. Do you think you can stand the heat? (laughs) I will try, man. I'll do my best. It's five minutes before you go on stage for an important performance. What are you doing? For the most part, um, I'm not doing anything all that special. I, I tend to try to stay really happy and relaxed. I mean, I find lots of times if I'm backstage with friends, um, kind of joking around and enjoying myself, 
and uh, feeling like this is really no big big deal. This is actually a normal thing that I'm going out to play in what otherwise could be viewed as a high pressure performance. I, I tend to have uh, better success with it. What is the best performance related advice you've ever received? I can't remember who told me this, but I, I use this often in master classes when I, especially when I'm talking to addressing someone who's a nervous performer. Uh, someone pointed out to me, look, man, it's music. It's not brain surgery or flying a plane. No one gets, no one gets hurt if you screw up. <laughs> Therefore relax and, uh, feel free to screw up. And once you, um, feel free to make mistakes because the stakes of, uh, of, uh, screwing up are so low, you find that you play better and you're actually more likely to play, uh, more consistently and more accurately. And so that ended up being really great advice for me. What is one tip for our listeners to help deal with stage fright? One of the most important things to keep in mind is that when, when you're experiencing stage fright, it's fundamentally because your your center of attention is not on the music, but it's in some way it's on yourself. Um, self-consciousness is what breeds stage fright in one way or another. You know, we, we end up feeling like there's some kind of consequences that we might face if things don't go well or we're feeling pressure um, that has to do with our own um, our own stakes in the performance, you know. And so one thing to do is to train yourself in the practice room um, to focus your attention on the music. Um, we're not really good at pushing things aside. If I say to you, James, don't think of the white elephant, um, it's very likely that an image, image of a white elephant is going to pop in your brain despite my telling you not to. But on the other hand, if I suggest you think about a giraffe, and you do, um, the white elephant recedes into the distance. And typically the things that make us anxious will do the same when we focus on the task at hand. If we focus on the music, the sound of the music, and on and enjoying the fact that we're just sharing music with an audience that's there to enjoy it with us, um, many times we'll start to relax and we end up playing better and, uh, you know, maybe we're not going to play with 100% accuracy, but that's not usually what the audience is there to hear. They just want to hear, they just want to hear the song, you know, <laughs> whether it's a, literally just a song or it's a much more complicated piece of music. They want to hear that content. They want to enjoy the music on its own terms. And we're supposed to be the conduit to sharing that music. And if we focus on that, um, most of the time we're going to have a better time and we're going to be more successful. Well, this last question of the interview is a doozy. So do your best. It's the end of the performance. The audience—it's yeah. uh, the audience is on its feet, standing ovation. They don't want any more. They don't want any less. Everything is absolutely perfect. What have you just done? Give us details, venue, repertoire, who you're playing with. Just go to town. <laughs> so you're looking for an example of this having happened to me? It could be either real or it could be imagined. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, what I've just done, I suppose, in, in a more of a, from a philosophical viewpoint is I've, I've done my job perhaps on the most fundamental level. I've just, uh, been that vehicle for the music, um, and shared it in such a way that we all had a great experience, you know. All right. Did you play, um, did you play uh, the Hummel or Night in Tunisia? 
Um, I certainly didn't play the Hummel with that uh, that glaring error. <laughs> sure, let's say night, night in Tunisia in this case. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn more about the show and subscribe to my email newsletter. You can also find us on Facebook, where we record a live Pay It Forward Friday episode each Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just type in James Newcomb on Trumpet.com into your browser to find the Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we will be in your earballs soon. You're still here. You must like this show or something. Well, I've got a special offer for you for hanging in there to the very end and proving yourself to be a true listener. I have a brand new and it is exclusive for devoted fans of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. It is called The Secret Chamber of Don Clarino. It's brand new. I don't even know what's going to come of it. I'm honestly not even really involved in it, but I'm contractually obligated to tell you about it as an employee of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. So if you want to learn more about it, here's the URL, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash DC, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash DC. There's a short registration process and you'll be in there. Okay. I don't know if I'm even allowed to be in there, honestly, but check it out. See if you like it. Later.